You sound very good this morning, church. That's great. Join me now in prayer. Lord, we would ask that you might make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, let us show mercy. Where there is discord, let us show union. Where there is doubt, let us demonstrate our faith. Where there is despair, let us show hope, and where there is lightness, let us be light. Where there is sadness, let us bring joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. Not so much to be understood, but to understand. For it is in the giving that we receive, it is in the pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in the dying that we are born to eternal life. We pray this morning for the sick among us, the sick among our families. We pray for our missionaries that you might keep them strong and protect them. We pray for our government officials and the lost people of this world. We pray that the peace that passes all understanding might rule in their lives. And we pray for our pastor and his family as they spend time with their son in Texas. Grant them your watch care and your traveling mercies as they return home. We pray that you might find our worship this morning acceptable and pleasing. In Christ's name, amen. So our sermon this morning is going to come from one of my favorite gospels, Mark's gospel. We're not yet back to Exodus, but you will hear some themes of Exodus in Mark's gospel, as I have told you before. So we are going to read from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, where Mark describes how Jesus calms the storm. And perhaps if you listen closely, you might even be reminded of last week's sermon. So Mark chapter 4 beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking, up, breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Father, we ask that your spirit speak to us and open our hearts and minds to your word. Allow your word to comfort us amid the various raging storms in our lives. In Christ's name, we pray. So many of you have heard of the famous Dutch painter Rembrandt. And he has a famous painting that depicts this very scene from Mark's Gospel. It's called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the ship that he paints 
is tilted on its side, almost turning over. The rough water is tipping the boat and slashing against the boat. And the sky is dark in half of the painting. While on the other side of the painting, a ray of light is shining through. In the picture, someone is sleeping with a group of men around him. In Rembrandt's painting, there are 14 people depicted. 12 disciples, Jesus, and someone else. In the middle of the bow, a crew member looks out toward the viewer. And you can see the fear in his face. The person is painted with such a degree of fear that it is as if he is facing the end of his life. Now, many art critics have suggested that this is a self-portrait of Rembrandt. He put himself in the painting. He painted himself in the boat with Jesus and the disciples. Now, this is a, a great illustration because it demonstrates not only the dire situation the apostles found themselves in, but the feelings and the raw emotions of the disciples as they go through this terrible experience. They're panicked and they're terrified. It also explains the story's point in Mark chapter 4 and many other biblical stories. As we read and meditate on the stories in scriptures, it might be helpful to sometimes see ourselves in that story as part of that story. Perhaps we should see ourselves in that boat fearing for our lives while Jesus is asleep. I know you've had times like that in your life. Jesus, where are you? I need you so badly right now. And it seems like he might be asleep. You're wondering if you're going to make it. Is the storm that is raging in your life finally going to be the end of you? Maybe you felt that way just in the last week with the economy reeling. Uh, the events in the world kind of create a feeling that just one more government blunder and we're going to be at a world war. Our political system has never seemed so awash in corruption. Endless congressional hearings, talks of impeachment, stolen elections. Arrest this man, arrest that man. The list goes on and on. Not to mention the personal trials that each one of us face. They might, have, they might be our very own trials. They might be the trials of a dear friend. Or they might be the trials of a loved one. No one in this room, no one associated with this body of believers is immune from these storms. Traumatic events in life turn our world upside down. And sometimes, speaking from experience, we overreact in a, with an out-of-control fear or with a deep, deep sense that all is lost. We feel helpless and hopeless. We cannot change the situation. When those times come, passages like this are there for us to go to, to run to, to see. Will Jesus wake up? Is he going to sleep through this? 
Yes, Jesus has a message for us amid the storm. Now, one of the things we need to understand as we look at this story, and I've talked to you about this before, one of the significant themes in Scripture is related to water. And in our passage today, we find our disciples in the water, in a boat. So we're going to look at water, and we're going to look at the response of fear, not only to their situation, but to any situation. Whether you're sitting in a boat in the middle of the sea, thinking that you're going to die, or sitting at home with your mind and your life filled with fear. And then we'll look at the response of faith. So water, significant in the Bible, so significant in fact that it starts in Genesis and it flows all the way through Scripture to the end of Revelation. So this story isn't just an encouraging story about Jesus, who happens to be on a boat with his disciples to calm the water. This story is connected to other Old Testament passages, and it's connected to other scenes in the New Testament, and it revolves around the image of water and the power of God. See, the calming of the water in this story is Mark's way of trying to get us to understand, the disciples to understand, the kingdom of God has arrived. And in their case, the king is in the boat with them. But they don't understand that yet at this point in their journey. So the image of water in the Old Testament is very often connected to judgment watery judgment. It's linked to chaos. Uh, it, it can have a very negative meaning in the Old Testament, particularly in references to the sea. Now I know you can go sit by some calm water and relax, and it can be a good place to find some peace and rest for your soul. And as we saw last week, the Lord is our shepherd who leads us beside still waters. But this story is dealing with something far different than still waters right now. If you've ever been in the midst of a storm on the gulf or a lake, then you know that when that wind comes up, the waves come up, you know you're in a dangerous place. And let me tell you a story. When Mike and Barbara moved to Florida, they brought their big old pontoon boat with them because we run the pontoon boat on the Tennessee River. So I've navigated a boat on the Tennessee River. I've navigated a boat on the Mississippi River. I had been out on a boat a few times in the Gulf, a pontoon, and the owner let me drive it a little bit. But I didn't really have a lot of experience handling a boat in the Gulf. So we go and find a, a bay boat because we're water people and we just got this boat we got to take it out right I mean you just got it you got to take it out so four adults and two grandchildren we load up in this 19-foot boat and we go out and we're gonna fish <clears throat> and we want to get in some deeper water so you know, if you're familiar with the waters here, it takes, you've got to go about a mile per foot. 
to get any depth. So we're at about 12 or 13 feet. And we have a following sea. That means the wind is behind us. So it's kind of pushing us. The waves kind of push us along. So we get to this spot where we're going to stop and fish. And I'm having a really difficult time holding the boat still, getting the anchor set. And as the boat comes around back towards Crystal River, I see all the white caps. I see, oh, that following sea, now we're going to have to head back into it. And I decide we probably don't need to be fishing today. In fact, we don't need to be out here. We need to get this boat out of the water and these children off of this boat. So we go heading back toward the shore. And I suppose the waves were probably three or four foot, but they seemed much taller than that. Um, and that when you're talking about waves, there's a, a rate of return or something that they talk about. How close the waves are to each other. On this day, the waves were very close to each other. And that's a bad thing for somebody in a boat, a small boat. If the waves are far apart, the boat has time to go up the wave and down the wave and settle down before the next wave. When the waves are close together, the boat goes up and before, as it's coming down, the next wave slams and you get a boat full of water. So we had that for quite a ways on the way back in and uh, it was a good lesson for me. Mike, you don't know so much about handling a boat in the Gulf. Uh, and there was a bit of terror <laughs> in my heart. Of course, I couldn't show that. And I laughed and yucked it up as the boat jumped up and down. But really, I'm thinking, oh, my, what have I done? <laughs> we have a long ways to go. But at any rate, some of you probably have similar experiences if you've been out in the Gulf or on one of the large lakes here and the winds come up. Not a pleasant situation. So throughout the Bible... The deep waters are supplied with symbolic imagery that it is a chaotic place and it's a place that brings death. Consider Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, the very first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God brought order out of that chaos. He brought life out of that chaos. Remember the scriptures say the earth was without form and void. It was empty, uninhabitable, without life. Now contrary to some scientists, life doesn't just spring up in those situations unless God acts, unless God does something. And this is confirmed in other places in Scripture that use the phrase without form and void. A couple of examples. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22, where God says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They have no understanding. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. It's the same expression that we find in Genesis. It's a picture of chaos and confusion. In some passages, it's the undoing of creation, decreation. You've heard me speak of this before in reference to the flood. 
God is decreating creation through this watery judgment. And then he recreates. He brings new order out of chaos. So in the flood, he judged the earth. He decreated. And then he recreates as he draws the waters back into their place. In Exodus chapter 14 and 15, water again. Israel leaves Egypt. They're moving towards the promised land. And they only travel a short time before there is a serious obstacle. Pharaoh is in hot pursuit. And where have they camped? On the banks of the sea. Pharaoh on one side and the sea on the other. Death by Pharaoh, death by the sea. What's the difference? It's chaos, confusion. And then God makes a way. And they get across. And then Pharaoh and his army enters in. And God closes the way. And death and chaos and confusion reign once again over Pharaoh in his people. And the people sang the song of Moses on the other side. And in that song, they described the sea as the deep, surging water, the mighty waters. A place of death and destruction. A place of chaos for the Egyptians. Here's the point. When Israel is facing Pharaoh behind them, or the sea in front of them, Pharaoh represents death. He will come and either enslave them once again or simply annihilate them. The sea meant death because it pictures chaos, confusion, the place where the Leviathan lives. Leviathan is also sea serpent. I've told you before about the serpent, the sea serpent. The dragon that causes chaos in the world is associated with the sea. So when God acts on behalf of the Israelites at that very moment, he not only stops Pharaoh, he symbolically slays Leviathan. He symbolically slays the serpent. Let me give you just a couple more examples from Scripture of Israel's view of the sea. Psalm 65. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. In Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging sea when its waves rise, and you still them. Now, those are just a couple examples. There are, uh, the list is long of other examples that we could go to. So that's kind of the background for this passage, an understanding of what the sea represents, particularly to the Israelites who were not necessarily a seafaring people. Now, granted, Peter and some of the others are fishermen, but they're not world travelers across the sea. So the water in this storm represents to them chaos, death, confusion. 
And God is telling His people that if they're facing a crisis, like maybe another pandemic, the threat of war, the threat of some some threat to yourself or some threat to your family or a loved one. We don't know what the future holds. He's telling us to trust Him. God is telling His people that He will bring order out of the disorder. But to get to that point, the way to order has to go through fear first. God is very much a God of order. Very much a God of order. And if you spend any time in the wisdom literature, you will see that. Sin is disorder. God is very much a God of order. And sin is the counter to that disorder. The second thing we want to see in this passage is how the disciples respond. This response of fear. They go out across the sea and not... Not long before they're gone, here comes this big windstorm. Water's coming over the side of the boat, and there's Jesus sleeping. And they wake him up. They wake him up because they're terrified. They're scared. And they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the end. It's the end of the journey. It's the end of life. Filled with fear. Now, fear is a legitimate response. In this case... It's not as if you should say, oh, they shouldn't be afraid Jesus is with them. It's not what Jesus is saying. And it's not what your reaction would be if you were in that boat. Fear is essential. It's a human emotion, a response to abnormal situation. It kind of serves as a warning system for us. It can single danger or the need to change course now. And fear can result in one of two types of action. It can result in anxiety. That's a normal response. But again, it is not the path that Jesus is showing us in this passage. If fear goes towards anxiety, which, as we said, is rather normal, the following response, if you fail to overcome that anxiety, is a desire for control. I need control of the situation. I need control of the events. I need control of my life. And in this orderly world that God has created, when something gets in the way, when something blocks our ability to control, the next response is anger. The next response is rage. And that anger and that rage is rarely directed at yourself. You generally will direct that at others. And that's a result of our inability to gain control. So there's a pattern there that we can recognize. And I guess... I would ask you, when you direct that rage and that anger at somebody else, what are you doing to their faith? What are you accomplishing with your anger 
you put their faith under assault because you can't control what's going on. And we all know from our own experience, God is mysterious. And there are things in this world, in our lives, that happen that are so far beyond our control. Just like this storm these disciples are in. It's beyond their control. When they left the shore, everything seemed fine. They get out to sea, and everything changes. And their anxiety, their fear turned to anxiety. And they couldn't control the situation. And they became angry. Do you not care if we perish? Wake up! We're going to die. Don't you care? I can imagine those words coming out of my mouth. I can imagine my own anxiety, my own fear, my own anger boiling up because I can't control what's going on. I've tried. The disciples, those who were fishermen, they're trying to keep the boat upright. And they know that they're in grave danger. Notice in verse 39, it says, He awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still, and the wind ceased. And there was a great calm, and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Well, before we're too hard on the disciples, let's note what has happened just before this in chapter 4. This story is at the end of chapter 4. But what's happening earlier in chapter 4? Parables. Jesus is telling parables. He tells four parables. And in the midst of that, he gives an explanation of parables. And let's look at that explanation in Mark 4:10 and 11. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables, and he said to them, "To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables." So you see that the parables are teaching us about the kingdom of God, and that is what Christ is trying to show them in this instance in the boat. The kingdom of God has arrived, and the king is in the boat with you. So, the opposite response of faith is quite popular to say is unbelief. I've said it myself hundreds of times. But I've had to rethink that a little bit. Can I believe one day and not believe the next? I don't think that's how the Christian life works. But it's so popular to say, Well, the opposite of faith is unbelief. Well, if fear is a natural human response, why do I have to call that unbelief? Why can't it just be fear? Why can't I trust Jesus and still experience fear? Because that's really the opposite reaction of faith is fear and anxiety. It's not unbelief, it's simply fear and anxiety. This is what the disciples are displaying. 
The story is talking about the kind of anxiety where we let our mind race and wonder, how am I going to make it? What's going to happen? This world keeps clamping down on me. Threatening my peace. A world that wants to drag me down into the abyss of chaos. And when chaos comes, we tend to spend time spinning stories in our head. Narratives in our mind. Stories that ask, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? Well, what if I do this? What if I don't do that? That's where the anxiety takes us. These what-if questions only serve to raise our anxiety, which then leads to panic. It's not the kind of faith Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the type of faith that in spite of fear, trusts that our God is the one who can calm the sea, who can still the waters. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And notice right after this, it says they're filled with great fear. Now the fear in verse 41 is different than the fear they experienced previously. The fear in verse 41 is because they in no way expected this man in the boat with them to stand up and say, peace, be still. And the sea to stop, to calm itself. That's not what they expected. They had yet to learn exactly who he was. That's what Mark writes in verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? See, part of the problem with their faith at that point was that they needed to understand who Jesus truly was. Maybe he was a rabbi. Maybe he was a great teacher. That's how they addressed him. Teacher, do you not care if we perish? They had yet to come to grips with the fact that he was the Son of God. He was the King. He was God incarnate. The same God who calmed the waters in Genesis 1 and 2. The same God who parted the Red Sea in the Exodus. The same God the Psalms speak of that calms the seas. The raging storms. That's who was in the boat with them. Let's contrast them with something from Acts. Paul in Acts 27. It's a passage where Paul's on the boat and things are not going well and some of the soldiers want to start throwing people off in order to save themselves. Paul steps up and says, no, God has spoken to me. God of the universe has spoken to me. No one's going to die. Don't do it. Don't throw people over. We can throw the cargo over. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to make it. This is the way. So the difference between Paul's faith and the faith of the disciples is that Paul knew Jesus. Now you're going to say, well, Mike, the disciples knew Jesus. They were with him. But they didn't know him at that point like Paul knows him at the point of Acts 27. He knew that the Jesus he believed could perform any miracle and calm any storm. See, Paul is demonstrating mature faith, the kind of faith that most of you people in this room should have at this point in our lives. Mature faith. 
not junior varsity faith. And this faith, this mature faith, has been developed for Paul, for you and I, through many harrowing, terrifying, and fearful incidents in our lives. The faith of Paul and the disciples later is all the proof that we need that for our faith to mature and to truly grow deep roots, it has to be planted in adversity. It has to be fertilized with trials and tribulations to grow truly deep roots. So as we begin to conclude this passage, I want you to notice something that I left out at the beginning. Verse 35 says that on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. You see, the story sets up because Jesus took them to the other side of this sea. It was his idea to get in the boat and go. Another way we might say that is Jesus took them into the storm. And if you correctly understand God and his sovereignty, his providence, you cannot avoid the fact that the God we worship and serve brings us into the storm. Jesus took them into this sea, into this storm, on this boat, on purpose, so that they would ex have this experience of fear and to see his power, to begin to understand who he was. Now, we might wish there was a way to know exactly what the future holds with this world we live in, um, with our individual trials and tragedies. And through this coming year, whatever that situation is, however bad it gets, however bleak it gets, Jesus is still a loving shepherd. He's still a loving Savior. Your God is a heavenly Father, and He directs our path. And when He takes you into a storm, He does it in order to strengthen your faith. So if we can learn to view life's trials through the lens of faith and to begin to trust Jesus no matter the path he leads us on. Martin Luther commented on what was happening in this story and he says, the disciples were unaware in their hearts that their hearts trusted in the stillness of the waters. How often is it that a storm comes up and makes us aware that our hearts have become lax? Our hearts have become used to and trusted in the still waters. We become used to the still water when life seems okay. And our trials are not the type that bring fear and anxiety. The day-to-day -day things we manage with relative ease. It's when the heart-wrenching trials of life come to us and the whole world seems disjointed. We can't think straight, anxiety kicks in, Fear, panic, 
a need for control, and ultimately rage if we don't exercise faith. Remember, fear can be an impairment or it can be a gift. What will we do with that fear? Will it lead us to a mad rush for control? Got to have control. And what happens when we fail to gain that control? The anger and rage are sure to follow. And again, I ask you, who will be on the receiving end of your anger? Who will receive the brunt of your rage? Whose faith will your anger impact? When fear comes, it's fight or flight time. You can flee to the anxiety or you can stand and fight. You can look at whatever trial befalls you, maybe even through tears and heartbreak, and know that our God still reigns on his throne. We can trust him. He's a God of order. There is no guarantee that because you trust Christ, he's going to solve your problem. He's going to resolve that problem. We've seen it too many times in the lament psalms. But he's still there. And he's in the process of restoring order to the disorder that we create. He may not restore your order this side of heaven. But he will restore order ultimately one day for all. And just as Rembrandt painted this picture, I would encourage you to see yourself in the boat with Christ. Terrified in many ways of the storms that are around you. And you feel like you might be wrestling with your faith. How do I respond? How do you answer the questions, the what if questions? What do I do? You can't stay in that mode of fear that leads to anxiety. It would be best if we move beyond fear to faith. We must move from the boat of the immature faith of the disciples to the mature faith of Paul the Apostle. Don't trust in the stillness of the waters. Trust in the one who created the waters and trust that he knows the path he's leading you down. Allow your faith to grow during moments of crisis and confusion. Allow your faith to be the kind of rock with an anchor for your soul. And as we saw in Psalm 23 last week, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yes, he will lead us beside still waters. But he will also lead us through the dark valley. And he will restore our soul. So that you might say, it is well with my soul. You can trust that goodness and mercy are in pursuit of you all the days of your life. Pray with me. Father, we would ask as we look at this passage today that you would use it to strengthen our hearts. Lord, we are a people of faith who trust whatever the case with this lost world and any number of things that could happen over the next few weeks or years. You have taken us into this storm. And as people of faith, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to minister to others, to love others, to be the hands of feet in Christ in whatever situation we find ourselves. Take this passage, strengthen our hearts and our faith so that we can trust you in the midst of the storm and that you might calm the raging waters of our soul so that we might have peace. 
In Christ's name.